My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me in today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about the buy now, pay later industry and why Apple looks set to dominate it. Why Sheryl Sandberg has chosen to step away from Facebook as it changes to Meta. And we also pick some of our favourite dividend paying companies. So Rory and Marie, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast. For all our listeners out there, you know the story, but I just want to remind you that we now have an extended version of this Stock Club episode that you can only listen to in the My Wall Street app. At the end of the show, Anne-Marie or Rory are going to pitch, well, they're both going to pitch me two companies, but I'm going to pick one of them that I prefer, and we're going to have an extended pitch that you can listen to in the My Wall Street app now. So if you want to hear that full discussion, jump on over to the My Wall Street app now where you can listen to this episode for free. Guys, before we came on air, um, it hadn't been planned but news kind of started bubbling up we're recording this on wednesday news started bubbling up that there's something going on between roku and netflix potentially maybe uh and marie you wrote, wrote a, a quick update in the my wall street app about that what, what's going on there just uh, quickly basically it's it's somewhat rumored that netflix might be attempting to buy roku the the only real concrete evidence that we have is is Roku allows employees to purchase stock every quarter if they would like as a part of their compensation. And Roku has apparently said they're not allowed to this quarter. Oh. So people are expecting that there will be some something that will impact the stock price quite significantly. Yeah. So if that were to happen, it would actually be Roku going back in-house at Netflix. They did start there originally and got spun off. It would be I think it would be beneficial for Netflix. I think it would be kind of a shame for Roku stockholders. Yeah, we don't really like to see young companies like that get bought out from underneath us. Rory, we've had, or you've had a lot of experience with that. It does happen. Um, it's a, it, I'm sure there's going to be a, a decent premium on it, but surely nowhere near where the company was trading just uh, six, seven months ago. Um, and yeah, interesting that Netflix yeah. is kind of doing a reverse here on on what they wanted out of Roku. Roku was originally, as Anne-Marie said, it was originally a Netflix project um, to create a kind of box uh, that people would be able to plug into the back of their TV so they could watch Netflix on their TVs rather than on their laptops. And Reed Hastings, you know, days before they were about to push the button on it, um, decided he didn't want to have a kind of exclusive box for Netflix. He didn't want to come. He wanted to be an open kind of um, company that was available on all kind of streaming devices. He didn't want to have Apple saying to him, "Oh, you can't put Netflix on Apple TV." So I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's decided they're big enough now that they can go down that route. Or, but then I wonder what's Roku going to look like um, as a kind of closed platform or as a non-open platform. Yeah. Do Netflix still have a, a, a stake in Roku if it's spun out for them? 
I think like Reed Hastings might personally have one, but I don't think the company ever ha- was holding one on its balance sheet. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Well, look, it's, it's one to keep an eye on. But let's move on to the stories we did plan to talk about this week. And the first one is Apple. Apple hit the headlines earlier this week after the company announced what many people had long kind of been expecting, that it's going to launch its own buy now, pay later service. So as part of its new operating system, Apple will now allow users to pay for purchases and installments over six weeks without being charged interest or other fees. This will be available at any point of sales that supports Apple Pay. So that includes both digital and in store purchases buy now pay later or bnpl to for short has exploded in popularity over the last couple of years led by firms like Klarna, afterpay and affirm and unsurprisingly shares in those public companies affirm i think is definitely one of the public ones they were rocked by the news of apple entering the space putting more pressure on an industry that's to be honest over the last couple of months facing a lot of pressures and a lot of scrutiny and marie we'll go to the apple story specifically in a moment but i think first of all you know there's been a lot of interest a lot of talk about this buy now pay later bnpl industry. Can you kind of give us a, a brief overview of it and why it's so rapidly becoming the, the focus of so many people's attention? Yeah, it's it's a relatively recent occurrence, really. We've kind of seen it gain popularity in the last few years. And I, and I think that's mainly because a lot of people don't have credit cards anymore. Yeah. Um, this is for two reasons. Like one, probably a lot of young people, like people in their early 20s, lack a good enough credit score to get a, a like a decent card with a decent interest rate that, that, that would be appealing to them. And I think number two, Probably, especially for millennials who grew up in the wake of 2008, they seem to be a bit averse to credit products and they don't seem to want to be involved with banks in that way. And so buy now, pay later cropped up as kind of this middle of the market solution for these people who every once in a while would maybe be making a big purchase and needed some help breaking it up so that they didn't need to wait, you know, six months to save up all their money so they could buy a couch all at once. And that's kind of how it started out. And it reminded me a lot of kind of old timey layaway programs that you would Mm. have at stores with the exception being that you got to take the product home that day it didn't have to stay at the store and so you just made you know your four or six payments and so long as you didn't miss any payments you didn't have to pay any interest and you didn't have to pay a late fee and that was great and the way that buy now pay later companies made money was merchant fees so a merchant would agree to bring in your buy now pay later service and they would pay you a small fee the reason being that it tends to increase basket sizes because if people know, oh, I don't have to pay for this all up front, they tend to just buy stuff they don't need. Okay. So that's kind of where we started. The issues that we now seem to be seeing is because because there are so many players in the field and they're fighting with one another, there's not a tremendous competitive advantage anymore. So now there's more and more pressure on these companies to begin generating revenue through interest. So we're seeing more and more interest products uh, come, come out and, and those tend to be a little bit meaner to consumers and so i think that's kind of where some of the some of the um hesitancy around these types of companies comes from yeah it's interesting because like when i first heard of buy now pay later i assumed it was some sort of kind of credit system you know where you 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 get 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 your get your purchases on on credit and you pay interest over time and i believe that kind of that kind of ambiguity between you know is this what what is this product you know i I see um in in a lot of countries in the uk it's actually completely unregulated to be Mm -hmm. buy now pay later space in australia it's currently unregulated but i know it's becoming regulated i know there's a lot of kind of different states have different kind of opinions on it in the us as usual what what are these concerns based on and, and how does it kind of get away with i suppose not being classified as a credit product yeah, they do seem to lack financial scrutiny that you would expect with any other traditional lending product like a credit card or a loan. And 
I would I would agree, but I've seen many people criticize these products as saying that they're kind of unfair and they're misleading because of the type of consumers that they target and the type mm. of stores that they tend to partner with. And really, it takes advantage of a lot of young people. In the United States, 61% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 has used a buy now, pay later service. And like, if we think back in the day, like I doubt so many people aged between 18 and 24 would have and be using credit cards month on month. So yeah. it just seems to be you know, you target these people who are very eager to buy clothes and aren't really thinking about their long-term financial future. And and you end up with a bunch of people who end up, you know, buying $500 worth of something on a buy now, pay later service that they immediately forget about. And then they get charged, you know, a late yeah. fee every month or, you know, some of the products are interest bearing. So it's just a bit unfair. Also, it is worth saying that in our current inflation times, a worry that I have, and I think a lot number of people have, is that buy now, pay later programs might become the kind of demonic crutch for people who are struggling. A firm CEO, recently said that he wants their product to be available for people buying groceries, mm. which is a pretty terrible like reflection of, of not only the wider economy, but also probably your company if you think that it's acceptable to put people on payment plans to buy food. And then I think on top of that, the issue that I also have them as well from an investment point of view is the companies really, really, really lack transparency. So when I used to take a look at a firm's quarterly reports, they release the rankings of the people who use the systems like grading. So yeah. they have an arbitrary number out of 100 and they'll tell you, oh, 95 percent of the people using our product have a rating over 95 but they in no way provide you with an equivalent metric. So a okay. firm can say, don't worry, everyone is rated above 95, but I don't know what 95 means. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't have their credit score, so I don't know how likely they are to repay this loan. Yeah, and it's 95 it's been, units, Henri. Just, just don't, don't think like, about it. But, like, what does that mean? <laughs> and so um, it's been very interesting because in the last few quarters, as inflation has gotten worse, and the, you know, um, things haven't been going so well, we have seen the number of people with lower and lower affirm ratings begin to use the product. And it's just something that is coming out in these quarterly reports that I'm a little bit suspicious of. And we have begun to see, particularly in the last quarter, default rates of affirm products are beginning to rise. And so it just is very difficult as an investor to effectively determine what is the real risk of investing in this type of company because they aren't all that interested in telling you, to be honest. Yeah. I also note there's um there's a piece I think just came out in Bloomberg today. This is specifically for a firm, I think, that the company, the way that they finance these kind of buy now, pay later loans is by securitization packages, which if anyone remembers about 14 years ago was the cause of an awful lot of chaos and concern. And that at the moment with with um, what's happening essentially in the in the macroeconomic climate, they're they're having trouble now figuring out or getting basically buying in money rather than getting rid of it. So that seems to be only an affirm problem. But I do think, I mean, okay. there does seem to be an awful lot of, I suppose, opaqueness around how these companies kind of fund their loans and, and, and what kind of people they're taking on. Yeah, absolutely. One kind of insidious thing I've often found about this, just from, a, I suppose, a consumer's experience is that these services are often offered as well at the point of sale. So when you're mm -hmm. just about to check out, you know, which obviously <laughs> you, you can't just get a credit card straight away when you're about to check out on, on an online payment. I often found that just a little bit unsettling. Have either of you ever used um, a buy now, pay later services out of interest? I actually no. don't think they're available in Ireland. We're, I think Ireland is one of the, like the, the strictest places for, for those kind of products. So I, I don't think I've ever seen one offered to me. Yeah. I think ASOS has Klarna available, but I've never used yeah. it. But I do, you do get it. It's like, it'll just be below. It'll be like, oh, PayPal, Apple Pay, and then right there, Klarna. And you're like, oh. Yeah, what's, what's this? <laughs> yeah. Wait, I don't have to pay for this now? Yeah. <laughs> 
let's move on though. So look, obviously an industry that's that's quite controversial, I think to say the least, and, and is going to face a lot more scrutiny in the future. Let's move back to Apple. I why is Apple wanting to get involved in this, Henry? I assume, you know, from the company's perspective, they have a, this big push towards services revenue kind of moving away from hardware. This is just another stream to add on to, you know, its services kind of um, revenue. But but is, is it, you know, is, does it make sense for Apple to move into another space that they're going to face a lot more regulation in? Mm. I, I really would view it as, as just kind of another part of the funnel to acquire consumers into the, I guess, what we could call the Apple banking segment. Like, not only now can you pay for things using your iPhone, but also now you can get a payment plan and it's very easy. Yeah. There's also the advantage of Apple tends to have more access to like your financial history, because if you're using Apple Pay for everything, I suppose that they can see how frequently you're spending money. But anyway, and I, I, I suppose it's just a, the creation of this flywheel where people are going to be shopping at stores using that might have an Apple payment plan available. And maybe if you're buying a big ticket item, you'll sit there and say, fine, I will use Apple Pay for this so that I can use the Apple payment plan. And maybe you don't happen to have an iPhone. So then you have to buy an iPhone to, you know, get an Apple Pay account. So it's just, you know, <laughs> the creation of this of of this yeah. wonderful Apple ecosystem. I think really the interesting thing is going to be Apple. The Apple's going to effectively destroy every one of these buy now, pay later companies' boats because it is currently Apple Pay is currently offered in 85 percent of retailers in the United States. And that is often the competitive advantage is, yeah. is the buy now, pay later companies argue with each other of who's getting into this store, who's getting into this brand, who's you know going to be partnered with Peloton. And Apple doesn't have to worry about that because they are already in all those stores. Yeah, so. it does strike me as a kind of a bully boy tactic because obviously Apple isn't dependent on this being a success, quite like I suppose Disney and its streaming service, Disney Plus. You know, it's 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 going to be an, a benefit to the company, but if it doesn't work out, well, you know, that's not the company sunk. They, they make money in a lot of other ways. I, I assume Apple moves into this space could be the death knell for a lot of these companies we've already seen I think was Klarna which is a private company Mm -hmm. lay off I think 100 or or 10% of its workforce or not 100%, 100 people or 10% <laughs> of its workforce recently. Um, it, it seems like this is a, a race to zero that Apple is going to make a lot faster. Uh, yeah, I would 100% agree. I think all of the companies up to this point, they've just basically ruined each other's products because in order to be competitive with one another, you either need to lower your merchant fee or you need to have a cheaper interest rate for consumers. And that's a race to zero. There, That's a race to not making any money, to not being profitable. So I would agree if this launch goes well and Apple does this effectively, I know that they have plans to move into interest-bearing products for higher ticket items. Um, I read about how they plan to do that. It's very interesting. They will also, in many ways, be circumventing credit cards because in order to gain access to an interest-bearing product through Apple, you have to have a credit card set up with the account. But Apple will just be charging your credit card every month, but Apple gets to keep the interest from the payment plan. Well, And if you don't pay your credit card bill, then you'll get hit with interest again on your credit card end of things. So it is very interesting and yeah, I I would agree. I think Apple is probably going to win this race if 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 it can launch effectively. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this rolls out over the next couple of months. Um, let's move on to some other pretty big news. I would say uh, coming from one hacker away last week, as Sheryl Sandberg announced that she would be stepping down as the COO of Facebook or Meta, whichever you prefer to call it, and um, this coming autumn. So Sandberg joined Facebook back in two thousand and eight, and in recent articles, I've noticed that she's been re- described repeatedly as, and I quote, the adult in the room of this kind of young and rapidly growing company that Facebook was about ten, fifteen years ago. She was crucial 
crucial in developing Facebook's advertising arm, which of course is the main way that Facebook has made money up until this point. But she also faced a lot of criticism, uh, arguably the brunt of the criticism behind Mark Zuckerberg over the 2018 Cambridge Analytica scandal. Rory, Sheryl Sandberg is often cited as one of the most influential female leaders in modern business. But what do you think her legacy will be after leaving such a complicated company and a complicated history like Facebook slash Meta? Yeah, she's one of those people that's incredibly divisive. I think, um, there's been, I've read an awful lot about her, a few good few profiles. and um, people seem to have kind of very divergent opinions on, on her. Um, Casey Newton, Newton actually did a very good piece just the day after his announcement. He, he basically kind of broke up Sandberg's time with Facebook in two. Um, and those two periods basically were kind of the first seven years there and the second seven years there almost kind of perfectly, uh, perfectly, um, divided into, um, you know, like you said, they joined them 2008 at the time. Facebook was kind of in total chaos. They built this kind of incredible social platform, but they really didn't know what they had. They didn't understand the potential of it. Obviously, yeah. Sandberg had plenty of experience in understanding kind of the true power of data. She had held a top business job at Google. And so just from the outset, you know, she did give this young company quite a lot of credibility and was tasked really overseeing pretty much how the whole company operated, you know, from everything, from its communication to its policies, to its ad network, to its business. Um, whereas I think Zuckerberg kind of focused more on kind of the product and the engineering. Mm. And look, she was very successful at that uh, from when she took the job. Uh, advertising sales of Facebook went from 777 million in 2009 to 117 billion uh, in 2021. Um, she was there for the acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. She was there. She oversaw the IPO. Um, at the time she joined the company at 400 employees. Today they have 77,000. Uh, she spearheaded an organization that reached a trillion dollar market cap. And, you know, during this time, she's probably the most visible, the most famous female executive in the world. Um, yeah. An outspoken advocate for women in the workplace and a best-selling author to boot. Uh, just a, an incredibly impressive person. Um, then, you know, in 2015, there was the very sad death of her husband. Uh, and I think around the same time, you know, kind of within kind of nine months of that, things did start getting quite difficult at Facebook. The kind of public perception really kind of switched on the company. Um, it was kind of right before the 2016 election. There was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, reports suggest Zuckerberg blamed her personally for that. Uh, then there was the questions of kind of Russian interference in the election. Um, the, you know, they didn't seem to break, uh, in the reports of the scandals of the company. You know, we don't, we only have kind of time, don't even have time to kind of skim the surface of them. There were so many. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a busy couple of years. It was a busy couple of years, busy, like pretty much every month there was something new. The yeah. data privacy, hate speech, genocide at one point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think, it was very often Sandberg who was kind of put in front of those scandals. She was the kind of, I suppose, the kind of acceptable face of Facebook um, for a long yeah. time. Um, and I think I was going to say the more human face, but it's it's not really that difficult <laughs> if you're standing beside Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, and and I, you know she was she was very good. People like her. She's a very likable person. Um, mm. And I think it's very it's kind of fair to say that it was around this time as well. The kind of Sandberg's priority really kind of shifted into kind of preserving the perception of Facebook in the eyes of the public um, rather than kind of dealing with the issues at hand. You know, she had been one of these people who seemed to go in and fix things 
now she kind of seemed to become one of these people who was just there to kind of, you know, make it look rosy. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, yeah, like that's made her a, a very divisive figure. You know, she's been, you know, people have said she pioneered a whole new level of tracking. She created like a new business of data mining at scale. Um, she's implicit in kind of all the issues that Facebook have struggled with and all the, the damage that has done to the world. Uh, so, you know, it, it really is kind of two Taylor sides two of the halves. same person. There's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's one where she's this incredible women's advocate and, and, and female leader and another where she's really at the root of one of the biggest problems that, you know, our society yeah, faces. Yeah, I want to go moment. back to that kind of conversation on advertising in a second. But Anne-Marie, um, Rory mentioned that she's, you know, often put up on a pedestal as a, an advocate for fe- females in business and especially in the kind of executive positions. On the FML podcast, you guys often talk about the challenges that women face in the worlds of business and investing. What's your perception on Sandberg? Do you think she helped more women get into senior leadership positions in world-changing companies like Facebook? Or, or what, what would your take on her be? Sheryl Sandberg's kind of an interesting person in terms of like feminist literature because she published a book, I think... That was prior to 2015 called Lean In. And mm. when I remember when she went on the book tour, it was considered a really big deal. And and I guess the philosophy or the lesson that she was trying to promote in that book was the idea that women within business needed to advocate for themselves. And part of um, – she, she was – really committed to the idea that they needed to unlearn this idea of, oh, you can't ask for things or you can't promote yourself or, you know, you can't hold others accountable. And for a while, that was seen as kind of, yes, this is what modern feminism is. But then within a few years later, by about 2018, she faced a significant amount of backlash because people argued with her that that kind of idea wasn't acknowledging of the systemic oppression that women within business could face. Mm. Um, And it was this idea really that she her philosophy wasn't really lining up with her actions. I think that was thrown in her face significantly when that scandal came out about Instagram, where it had been statistically proven that Instagram made young girls feel worse about themselves and it was yeah. making their mental health worse. And people were confused about how Sheryl Sandberg could say that she was an advocate for women while creating a product that was so detrimental to them. And so I think in many ways she has been rejected from the modern conceptualization of what it is to be a woman in the workplace. Um, it was interesting. There's a, the guardian in 2018 wrote an article about her called feminists gave Cheryl Sandberg a free pass. Now they must call her out. And it talked about specifically the issue of asking for a raise in your workplace. That was something Cheryl Sandberg talked about all the time. Women just go to your boss and ask for it. And then two years later, a statistical analysis came out that proved that actually women tend to ask for raises at the same uh, number as men do, but they are granted less often, which was mm. just a, which is kind of proving that sexism exists in our culture, in our economy, in our society. You know, this is something that we all need to address on some level. It's not the responsibility of women to simply advocate for themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, she's a very interesting, um, character. We actually, in our first episode of FML, called her a girl boss, which is a term that's <laughs> also fallen out of favor equally and is, you know, that idea of when your actions don't m- match your philosophy or the way you've labeled yourself. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Just when you mentioned that scandal there, it says a lot about a company when you actually forget about scandals they've had, especially yeah. can- scandals of that size. Rory, just to come back then on the timing of this announcement. So obviously, there's been a lot of change at Facebook slash Meta recently. Um, its rebranding to Meta has just pretty much been completed with the changing of its ticker symbol. Um, its ad business has been completely upended by new privacy measures. And um, specifically with this ad business, do you think that, 
you know, now is just an opportune time for Sandberg to leave or, you know, has she just kind of not got a place in a company that's rapidly changing towards this idea of a metaverse now? It's, it's, it looks like it's been coming for quite a long time. Um, you know, Sandberg was once, she had kind of a huge number of departments under operating under her. Um, she kind of seemed to be handing off those duties to others for the last kind of three or four years. You know, in 2018, there was a big reorganization. Um, Avier Olivan took over ads as well as kind of platform integrity. He's, he's now the new COO. Um, although I think Mark Zuckerberg announced he was going to be the CEO, but a, a much more traditional CEO, uh, in, in quotes. I don't know what he kind of means by that. <laughs> yeah. What um, does that mean? <laughs> I suppose maybe Sandberg was, was much more than a COO in many respects. Uh, Nick Clegg, who was recruited by Sandberg, slimeball, uh, <laughs> has taken over policy and communications. So she did seem to be stepping back from a lot of her core responsibilities over the last kind of three or four years. And, you know, I, you know, can't speak for her in terms of what she thought of the move of kind of the metaverse or whether that had any impact on her decision. But I think if you ask a lot of people, they'll say she should have stepped away from Facebook really a long time ago, um, maybe around 2016. Um, she certainly, we, we know she has political ambitions. Um, she does an awful lot of philanthropy. She's, she's been involved in, in democratic politics for a while. In fact, at one point she was being mentioned as a potential governor, possibly even a, a potential presidential nominee. Um, and th- it, I don't know if that's on the cards for anymore, given what's happened at that company over the last, uh, seven, eight years and, whether there's, you know, redemption for, for her in the political sphere in any way or, mm. or whether, whether she can kind of go off and maybe focus on her philanthropy for, for a couple of years and come back with a, with a fresh slate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see now the next few months at Facebook. I think they're really a company that, that are doing a 180. Uh, and, and for a company of that size, a 180 is is not the easiest thing to do. So we'll definitely keep an eye out on that. Uh, let's move on. And just before we go on, I just want to remind you guys that, of course, we have the extended episode of this podcast live in my Wall Street app right now. Um, you can listen to it for free. And the extended part that you get is a full elevator pitch at the end. So Rory and Anne-Marie are going to pitch me two companies. I'm going to pick one of them and we're going to chat about it in more detail and figure out what we like and don't like about the company so it's completely free to listen to these all you need to do is download the my wall street app on ios or android and create a free my wall street account i also remind everyone speaking of the my wall street app of the referral feature that we now have in my wall street this rewards you twenty dollars for every new subscriber that you refer to my wall street premium so this person that you refer will also get twenty dollars off a full year subscription so they'll get it for seventy nine dollars rather than ninety nine dollars so it's a true win-win situation you'll find your personal referral code in the my wall street app share your link with your friends or family and they can get it once they subscribe through that code this also includes a seven day free trial so they can unlock the premium aspects of our product and kind of experience those as well risk free and there's no limit on how many people you can refer so keep sharing the message and get your personal referral code to start claiming those rewards guys let's move on to mailbag so we're going to go with a bit of an amalgamation of questions that have been coming in today we've had a few people write into us and ask us about dividend stocks where you find them how they might work in your portfolio how much passive income you can actually make from dividends that's been a frequent one and re we, we don't actually really talk about dividend stocks or dividend paying stocks here on Stock Club or at my Wall Street really that much. What what are your thoughts on dividend paying stocks as an investment? Yeah, dividends always tend to fall as like one of the last bullet points when I'm writing up a stock. If it happens to have a dividend, we're like, oh, great, because we're yeah. 
quite focused on growth or something like that. Dividend investing is, I suppose, something that old people do who have lots of money <laughs> because like the best case scenario is, I don't know, you get a 5% annual yield uh, from a dividend stock and that's very few stocks, like oil companies have 5%. You know, like we have some dividend stocks in our showroom and they t- are, I think, 2.5% is maybe the highest that we have. And so if you think about 5%, like think how much money you need to have in to be able to effectively live off of 5% of an investment every year if that's your payout. I do know, however, that you can set up most brokerage accounts that you can just have your dividends reinvested. So if you happen to be invested in uh, a company that pays you a dividend and it's, you don't know, you only have $100 invested, so you're only getting $2, just have mm. that reinvested right back in. So then it's just like an added bit of growth. But they tend to be very large companies that have reached maturity that don't have I guess most uh, much growth left. They're quite consistent. Coca Cola is very is a very famous dividend stock. I mean, yeah. they haven't been they haven't moved much in the last five years, but at least you get your two point seven percent dividend every year. So, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, um, and so I, we do have a few dividend pairs, as you mentioned, in mm-hmm. my Wall Street shortlist. Any ones that either of you guys kind of point out as as particular favorites? I like Home Depot actually, and I just yes. updated. Yeah, I just You're updated speaking my language. their um, write-up recently, so you can go check that out. I think they pay 2.5%, and recently management said that they want to increase that. And on top of paying a dividend, like Home Depot is such a consistent stock. It like still grows pretty consistently every year. It does well, rain or shine. It's just a very solid company. So if you wanted a dividend stock but also don't want to run away fully from growth or stability, Home Depot is a nice option. Took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, I'd add, <laughs> I'd add to Marie that's or Marie's point there that there's sometimes you find businesses that could be in quite a lot of trouble will will raise their dividend quite significantly in order to try and attract um, investors, and that's kind of a can be quite a big red flag. You know, if you okay. look across kind of the big the big dividend payers that we have, um, I think you know Hasbro pays three percent, you know Vale Resorts pays three percent. It's you know, you're looking at the kind of two to four percent range is what you'd expect from kind of a, a stable company um and you can look into things like their payout ratio for example to see how, how how stable those payouts are going forward because there's nothing like a company cutting their dividend to to send investors running for the hills and that can happen quite quickly um a couple that i like i've always been a big fan of mastercard and um, that's yeah. one of the early stocks of my portfolio disney as well has always been a great dividend pair so yeah, there's some good companies to look into. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, guys. So, okay, let's finish out today with the elevator pitches as usual. So you guys are each going to pitch me about 30 seconds of an elevator pitch. I'm going to pick my favorite and then we'll discuss it further on the extended episode into my Wall Street app. So, Anne-Marie, I'll let you go first. What company are you pitching me? I have a weird one this week, which Brilliant. is called Rumble On. I s- came across them because there's a lot of insider buying is happening and our insider bot on Twitter flagged it for me. So I was like, I'll go have a look at that. And they are an online marketplace to buy, sell, or finance motorcycles, cars, or into power sports equipment like motocross, which is something I know nothing about. <laughs> the, their management in particular the last two years has been very focused on power sports, um, even though it only used to make up about 11% of their revenue. But they recently acquired another company called Ride Now, which is fully dedicated to power sports. Um, and that meant that their segment revenue in power sports increased by about 50%. That being said, 50% of their revenues are coming from the automotive segment, so used cars. And there are a lot of used car sellers in the United States, so there's not much of a moat there. But the power sport thing is kind of interesting. So, yeah. I don't know, a little bit, little bit funky, a little bit fun. 
I googled them there and their YouTube came up and it looks like what a 12 year old might make after drinking about five cans of Monster so uh, (laughs) I'm definitely going to dig into that later Uh, thanks for that Anne-Marie so let's rumble on Rory what company are you pitching me? I'm pitching a company called App Harvest. Um, you might be familiar with it, actually. I think it's a company I might have talked about. It's probably over a year ago now. They're yeah. the developer and operator of large indoor farms, um, or actually farm <laughs> right now. Large um, <laughs> <An> indoor farm. <laughs> they, uh, they came public through SPAC in 2021, which will kind of become later, important later on if, if you want to hear the full pitch. But yeah, they operate these controlled environmental agriculture environments, uh, which they kind of claim they can, they can make, um, much more food or 30% more produce than an open field using like 90% less water with no agricultural runoff. So kind of one of a kind of very kind of eco friendly solution to what is going out increasingly big problem in the world yeah okay it's a tough decision i think i'm gonna have to go with app harvest because i actually know we got a request from a listener to, to touch back on app harvest recently so that's nice timing and also yeah it's, it's always good to touch back in on companies and um, we frequently pitches but Anne marie i want you to promise me now we're gonna get an elevator <laughs> pitch for rumble on soon cool but look, let's go with app harvest so Rory, let's hear your pitch on app harvest so guys, if you're not listening to this in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you do want to find out more about App Harvest though and what we think of it as a potential investment, jump on over to the My Wall Street app where you can listen to the rest of our conversation on the company as well as get full written notes. Remember, if you have any questions or you'd like us to answer or future elevator pitches you'd like us to do, as I mentioned, App Harvest was a request from a listener. Make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us in the My Wall Street app. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks so much for joining us today. I will talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>